Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you've seen on the news recently, and it's been going on for years and years and years, but it's come up again in the news recently. There are people trying to escape from northern Africa, and they load up on these boats with just hundreds of them on these dilapidated old boats that shouldn't even be on the water, and they try to cross into southern Europe and Italy. And often what happens is the boat capsizes or people die along the way, they get lost along the way, and often they need rescued. And so you see there in the foreground, a little rescue ship has gone out. I assume there's a bigger ship somewhere close by that that ship represents. Uh, But the rescuers go out to help them. And I want us to think about this for a second. Because here is one group of people heading out onto the water in something that really isn't strong enough to hold them, into waters that are dangerous, And they're going in the hopes that it's going to get them what they want. So that's the migrants. Then there's another group of people that are heading out onto the water knowing they are secure. They're heading out into the same water, same situation, but they know they're secure. They know they've got their rescue vessel. They know they've got the rescue equipment. Both are on the same water, but for very different reasons, right? One is there in the hopes of getting what they want. One is there because they know there's people there to be rescued. And so they are there with a very different purpose. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And and we're calling this sermon series on 1 Corinthians saturated. What does it mean to be just soaked through with the gospel of Jesus Christ? The good news that we are saved by the Son of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. And within 1 Corinthians, Paul has sort of these... Uh, mini-series, I would call them. And chapters 8, 9, and 10 form a section that we're calling Lovingly Limiting Freedom. Because in this section, he's dealing with something that the Corinthians are saying, we have the right to do something, we have the freedom, so why can't we just do this? And Paul is lovingly saying, yes, you have that right, yes, you have that freedom, but is that really what's most important? And I found this section to be very challenging because in our typical American mindset, we love rights, we love freedoms, and for somebody to say, that's great, but maybe you don't need to express your right. Maybe you don't need to express your freedom. Well, that's somehow un-American, isn't it? Wait a minute, I get to go after what I want. And so today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to move through this very quickly. I think it's fairly easy to understand what's going on here, but I really want to get to some some application points for us. Because if you were here last week, or if you weren't, I'll catch up a little bit. Uh, In chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul is dealing with an issue that we don't really face today. And so it's hard to understand how it applies to us. The issue was, in their culture, much of their food, especially their meat, had been offered to an idol as an act of worship. It had been offered in the temple. They would have roasted it in the temple as a fragrant offering. And then they would divide up the meat. People could take it home and eat it. So they had several settings where sometimes they would go to the temple and have kind of, you know, like a potluck at the temple. And the food had been offered to the idol. Sometimes you would go into somebody else's house and they would be serving you food and say, oh yeah, this was offered to Apollo. We're eating it to celebrate Apollo. 
And you say, oh man, I'm a Christian. I don't know if I can eat this. Sometimes you'd be at somebody's house and you would know that the food was offered to a God, but nobody's saying anything about it. Can you eat that? Now, I've never faced a situation where somebody's offered me food that had been offered to an idol. I don't know that I ever will. I don't know that you ever will. But there's a broader concept that's going on here. Because the Corinthians are so focused on what they know and what they have the right and the freedom to do. And they're saying, well, Paul, this this determines what we do. And Paul is causing them to rethink that, to say, what if there's something greater, something more important, something beyond just your rights and your freedoms? So let's walk through this passage and see how Paul uses himself as an example of lovingly limiting his own freedoms. So let's start in verses 1 through 14 where Paul's going to say, look, here's my freedom, here's my rights. He knows what he's free to do. He knows what he has the right to do. Let me read this and just set it before us, and then we'll walk through it quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now again, This is a unique chapter because it's very much out of place with the surrounding chapters. And Paul does that on purpose. In the middle of his discussion about their rights to eat this food or not eat the food sacrificed to idols, he puts this chapter right in the middle and says, let me give you an example of this. Now, I'm guessing as I read that, some of you thought, oh my goodness, this does not apply to me at all. Are you crazy? Why are we talking about this? I'm guessing you're thinking that because that was kind of my first read through this week. Like, oh man, why, why are we talking about this? Stick with me. There's some amazing things in this passage. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about his freedoms. Paul was under attack by some, I think, kind of famous preachers that would go town to town to town. And they came in and people showered them with gifts and money and lavish places to stay because they were wonderful preachers, wonderful orators, wonderful debaters. And they would come through the town and just impress everybody by their knowledge. And the Roman culture at this time really 
made rock stars out of people that could stand up and hold a crowd's attention and just blow them away with their understanding and their speeches. And so Paul was probably not that great of a speaker. And, and some people, it seems, were coming in and saying, well, he's not as good as us. I mean, look, he can't even make his money from his preaching. He's, he's got to work as a tent maker. He works manual labor, so he's not free to do the things that we're free to be able to do. And Paul comes in and he says, am I not free? He says, look, what is freedom? Because for Paul, freedom was found in and only in Jesus Christ. Nothing else mattered. All of Roman society was divided in half. You were either a slave or you were free. And that was a huge, huge division. Your rights, your freedom, your day-to-day life was largely determined by whether or not you were a slave or you were free. But for Paul, all of life was divided into two parts. You're either free in Christ or you're slave to sin. And he says, look, I'm more free than you can ever possibly imagine using your criteria because I've been set free by Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, not only am I free, he says, I'm an apostle. That's a big deal. To be an apostle in this setting meant to be sent by Jesus Christ personally on a mission. So there's some authority there. He says, not only am I free, I'm an apostle. And then he gives some defense of that. He says, uh, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That was a requirement for the apostles. You can see that in Acts when they needed to replace Judas. Somebody had to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul saw Jesus in a unique way, didn't he? He saw the risen Lord when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He says, look, I fit the qualification. And then he says, even if people still doubt me, he says to the Corinthians, look at yourselves. Look at what God has done through me in your city and in your church. Can't you guys accept that I am a servant sent from God to help you and to serve you? And so he says, this is my freedom. I'm a Christian. I'm an apostle. He says, I'm a leader in your church. I have freedom. And then he goes on in verses, uh, say, 3 through 14. He's going to talk about his rights. In 3 through 6, he gives his general rights. He says, don't we have the right to food and drink? In that day and age, especially for those that were steeped in the Jewish culture and and the Jewish law, they would condemn those that would eat food that was either sacrificed to idols or food that was unclean. Uh, And so they would come to Paul and say, well, Paul, you're not consistent. You know, in this city, you're eating this, but in this city, you're saying you're not. And over here, you're eating with this people, and over here, you're not. And what's going on? And Paul says, look, I have the right in Christ to eat what I want. And we talked about that in chapter 8. An idol is nothing. All food was declared clean. He says, I have the right in my freedom in Christ to eat what I want. He goes on and he gives another right. He says, don't I have a right to marry, to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. And that name there, Cephas, is another word for Peter. Now, this is fascinating because do you see what Paul is saying? The apostle Peter is married. Very interesting for those that want to trace some sort of clergy back to not being married. The Bible itself says even Peter was married. Paul says, look, don't we have the right to be married? And of course, the answer is yes. He had the right to be married. And he says, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? 
He says, don't I have the right to come in and get money from you for preaching the gospel? And he's going to go into that in a second. Or is he and Barnabas somehow less of an apostle, less of apostles, because they work for a living separately? So that's the situation here. This is the example that he's giving. He has freedom in Christ. He has the right to support. And now he's going to defend that right. And what I want you to see here is how Paul uses their culture and especially how he uses Scripture to bring to bear on this situation because it is fascinating. In verse 7, he starts with kind of common sense. He says, look, if a soldier serves, does he not have right to gain his money from his service as a soldier? And in that day and age, when they would take a city, the soldiers would divide up the spoils from the city, and that's how they made their living. And he says, we all understand this. The soldier gets his money from serving as a soldier. He says, what about a vineyard worker? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? The people that worked in the vineyard had the right to eat of the fruit that they planted and tended. He says, what about uh, one who tends a flock, a shepherd? Don't they have the right to some of the benefits of the flock? So he says, you guys understand this even in your day-to-day life and in your culture. And then he takes it a step further and he goes into Scripture in verses 8 through 14. Now, I want to move through this as quick as we can because he's dealing with a lot of intricate things here. And I want us to get the sense of it without getting too bogged down in the details. First of all, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And this is a weird passage, to be very honest with you. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, it is, it's written for you right here. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The reason it's a weird passage is not so much that verse, it's where it's at in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is about justice, caring for those who are weak, those who have fallen below a standard of living, those who are poor. Deuteronomy chapter 25 is also about justice. It starts with uh, those who have somehow committed a crime or have some grievance against somebody else. And it says, look, they need to be brought to justice, but they also need to not be punished too much. The end of chapter 25 in Deuteronomy talks about a widow. How is a widow supposed to get her support? And so in the middle of all this talk of justice, here's this really seemingly random verse, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. So the question is, was God in the law in Deuteronomy actually talking about an ox? My answer is, I don't think so. I really don't think so. And Paul evidently agrees with me, so I think I'm in good company. Because he says... Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Verse 10, surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So Paul is saying even written into the Old Testament law was this concept of those who work should get their money, their sustenance, their support from their work. This makes sense. But then he goes on. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, he's going to talk more about people. He says, if, uh, let's skip to verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? He says, basically, those who work for the good of others have the right to expect their support from the good of others. 
this is kind of the way their society should work. This is the way the Old Testament is written. But then look what he says in verses uh, at the end of verse 12 there. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I'm not going to grab onto that right. I'm not going to use it. And what's fascinating is in that culture, to do something for somebody else obligated them to do something in return. There was a give and take, a quid pro quo. It had to happen. They owed you. So for Paul to preach the gospel, they owed him payment. For them to pay him then, he owed them to preach the gospel. And this was the sort of contractual agreement that this seemingly friendly support and loving support fell under. So Paul says, look, I could have exercised a right to preach the gospel and get paid for it. Instead, look at what he says he received. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. If you know a little bit about Paul, you know what that phrase entails, put up with anything. Paul was stoned. That means that he was thrown into a pit. Large rocks were hurtled down to him. And the idea was to keep doing that until the guy was dead. And yet Christ saved him. He was imprisoned several times. He was a poor wanderer. He was shipwrecked. He was persecuted from town to town to town. So Paul says, look, I had a right. I had a right to be treated well. I chose not to use it and instead willingly accepted this difficulty. I put up with it. Why? Rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on into some more Old Testament references in verse 13. In 13 and 14, he basically says, look, if we look in the Old Testament law, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but in the Old Testament law, there were laws written to support the priests that served in the temple. They didn't have their own land. They didn't get their money or their income from their own land. And so God said when people came to the temple, they needed to support the priests. And they made their living off of the temple. That's not to say they were supposed to get rich. They weren't. In fact, that became a problem later on in Israel. Priests trying to get rich off of their work. This is all in the context of God providing a means to provide for those who serve him. And Paul says, I have this right. But then look what he says in verse 15. Because Paul is going to go into this issue that there is something far greater than his rights. Let's read 15 through 18. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it freely of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul has a boast. We read that and we think, oh, you shouldn't boast. It's wrong to boast. But in the New Testament, the word for boast means glorify. It's what I find my glory in or what I glory in. And it could almost be used in the sense of what I worship. The thing that is most important to me, that's what I boast about. 
If you have a sports team and your friend has a different sports team and they play each other that weekend and your team beats their team and you get together, what are you going to do? You're going to boast. Because you consider your team more important. You consider it better. And you know what? Nobody can tell you to be quiet in that moment, right? Because your team won. Paul's saying, I have a boast. I have something I consider important. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nobody can take that away from me. Nobody can tell me to be quiet. I can't stop talking about it. It overflows in every situation of his life. And his boast is that he wants to present the gospel absolutely free. He wants to do whatever it takes for people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he gives a very intricate argument here, and it's kind of difficult to pull out all the threads, but let me walk us through it a little bit. He's operating under this cultural mindset of, of, again, using a right obligates you to the one who gives you that right. If you give something, you have the right to expect something in return. If they give you something, they have the right to expect something in return. So he's actually saying these people who say they're free because they earn their money from the gospel are actually not free because they now have to preach to you because you're paying them. So there's a difficulty there. Now, some of you may be thinking, this is odd because don't you get paid for doing this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second, okay? Hold on. What can I say? Paul's a better man than me. Uh, We'll get get there in a second, okay? Now, he says those who preach voluntarily have a different reward. He says, I'm not preaching because I have to because you pay me. I'm preaching because I want to. Because my reward is not in your payment. My reward is in Jesus Christ. Now, look at what he just did there. He said to a culture, and again, this is how the Corinthians are looking at it. They're looking at everything from a worldly perspective. I do this, I get this. I succeed here, I get more money. I get this promotion, I get to eat this, I get to do this, I get this pleasure. It's all on the horizontal level, what I do to get things from the world. And Paul says, you are totally wrong. You're looking in all the wrong place. He says, we need to look higher than that. There's a greater purpose in our freedom and our rights. He says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this for the payment. I'm doing it for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, if it takes me not using my full rights as a preacher to share the gospel, then that's what I will do. Now, I think it is important to say here, in other places, it is clear from Scripture Paul did receive support from churches. The Philippian church in particular was a major supporter of Paul. Even later on in 1 Corinthians, or maybe it was 2 Corinthians, uh, he talks about the support that he received from other churches that covered what he didn't receive from the Corinthians. Okay, so I just want to make it clear. Paul's not saying it's wrong to get paid for doing ministry. See, I have to make that clear, otherwise you think I'm wrong. (laughs) Now, that's very different than going on the news and requesting donations for a $70 million luxury jet, all right? Mr. Creflo Dollar needs to get off his high horse. That's ridiculous. We're not to get rich in the ministry. The Old Testament passages that he was describing were not about helping people to get wealthy. It was providing for their basic needs so they could serve the purpose God gave them. That's what this is about. Okay? 
But even that, Paul says, which is his right, he clearly demonstrated it is the right. He says, but if it takes me giving up that right for the sake of bringing you the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's what I will do. That's pretty important. And you know, as a pastor, I ask myself often, why do I do what I do? Do I get up here to preach this word so that you will pay me, so that you will support the church, so that you will support my family? And every week I have to answer that question, absolutely not. If my preaching the word of God according to how God is leading me and according to what is written in his scripture, if that leads me to being fired, then so be it. I am a slave to God and his word, not to my salary. Okay, I want you to hear that from my heart, and I really mean that. So, that aside, look at how he says and how he uses his rights. Now he's going to go on into his freedoms. And he says, not only is there a greater purpose than his rights, he's got a greater purpose than his freedom. Here he is, free in Jesus Christ, and of everybody, I believe Paul can absolutely make that statement, that he understands what it means to be free in Christ. He writes letter after letter after letter about the freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, I have this freedom. Now look at what he does with the freedom. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. What do we do with our freedom? We look at freedom as getting out of a bad situation. Paul says, I'm free so I can go back into that situation. He says, I'm free in Christ. My eternity is secure. My position in Christ is secure. I don't have to earn it. And because I'm secure, I can go back and rescue people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's his missionary philosophy, starting in verse 20. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. He says, look, if I need to learn to think like a Jewish person to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will. If I need to think like a Gentile convert to Judaism, that would be the reference there to someone under the law, then I will help them. And I will think like them. And I will get on their level. And I will talk to them. And Paul was a genius at this. He says, if I need to learn to think like the total pagan society and understand their priorities, I will learn how they think so that I can talk to them. So I can reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is not saying he gives up the gospel. He doesn't change what he believes to reach these people. This is something churches today need to really wrestle with. We can have this hard tension of going into our culture, understanding, respecting them, knowing where they're coming from, dialoguing with them, but still having an absolutely firm grasp on the eternal truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to give up one for the other. And churches tend to err on one side of that. They'll give up the gospel to reach the culture or they'll give up the culture to hold on to the gospel. And there's a difficulty there in the middle that Paul said, this is what it means to be a missionary and this is what it means to be a Christian because we are all missionaries for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
because he had a higher purpose. His purpose wasn't to hold on to his rights. It wasn't to hold on to his freedoms. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, verses 24 through 27. He says, this purpose determines my actions. Let me read this for us. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In their city, they had these games, the Isthmian Games, that would come through, similar to our Olympics. They would come through every couple of years. And athletes from all over the area would train. They would live their lives for years and years and years training to win these games. And if they could be the best athlete, if they could be the strongest, the fastest, they would win the prize. And the prize was a woven strip of celery that was placed on their heads. Really? One commentator said they would work so hard for wilted vegetables. I like that. But he says, look, you guys understand this. The athlete that's going to run in the marathon will look at food and say, I'm free to eat it, but I'm not going to because I've got a greater purpose. I'm free to seek these pleasures, but I'm not going to because I've got a greater purpose. I'm free to spend my life this way and my time this way, but I'm not going to because I've got a greater purpose. He says, we understand that from the athletic world. How much more so should this apply to us as Christians? We're not working for a celery wreath. We're not working and living for wilted vegetables. Our prize is to win others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much better? Now, Paul's not saying here he's working for his salvation. Okay, because that would go against so many other things that he's saying. He's saying, I know I'm saved. Therefore, I will work. I know I am victorious in Christ. That's not the race he's running. The race he's running is to use the time that God has given him for the purpose of winning others to Jesus Christ. That's the race he's running. He says, I have a greater purpose. And so he says, we have to live for the prize. Now look, for Paul, this wasn't looking at you know, a disgusting piece of food and saying, well, I'm just not going to eat it because I'm in a race, right? That would be easy for all of us. If we looked at something and it's just gross and ugly and awful, and then somebody says, you should give that up so that you can be a Christian. Well, then we'd say, well, great, this is wonderful. And, And can I tell you, in youth, I want you to hear this. We have done a disservice to our young people by presenting sin in that way. We say, well, you shouldn't do this because it's, it's ugly and it's awful and it's bad. And, and that's true. But then they get out and they get into college and the world says, well, try this out. And they look at it and they say, well, it's really not that ugly. It's really not that awful. You know, I, I can do that and it's really no big deal. And so then they compare what we've said, that something's ugly and awful, and they compare how it feels and they say, well, this is actually better. I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to ditch what my parents said and I'm going to go for this. We don't give up the things that Christ tells us to give up just because they're ugly and awful. 
we give it up because we have something so far better that it doesn't matter how good that thing feels. It doesn't matter how happy it makes us. It doesn't matter the security it gives us. What we have in Christ surpasses it all. And man, if we could get that in the heads of our young people, when they go to college and the world offers them things, they might say, yeah, I get it. That looks great. (laughs) I have something better. Why would I give that up for this? It doesn't matter how good it is. Paul is talking about giving up good things for something far, far better. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I'm not like a a runner that just runs around in circles for no purpose. I'm focused. I'm not like a boxer that's just flailing around, never hitting the other guy. I'm focused. He says, we need to live our Christian life focused. Sometimes we flail around aimlessly. And then we say, God, why aren't you blessing this? And God says, no, I've laid out a path for you. Run the race. Focus on Jesus Christ. And look what he says in verse 27. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This is a little bit off topic, but there's a lot of talk in our world today about how somebody is born. I'm born this way and that determines who I am. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Somebody's born a certain way, certain tendencies, they're designed that way, and and, okay. But are we a slave to our bodies? Or do our bodies actually exist to serve us and the purpose for which God has called me? See, that excuse is lame. God has called us for a purpose, and whatever situation, we've looked at this in other places in Corinthians, Whatever situation we're in, whatever tendencies we have, whatever struggles we have, they become an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed in our life. And we are to submit our bodies, our tendencies, our habits, our backgrounds, our pains, our wounds, our successes, our failures, whatever it is, we are to submit them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Period. So don't hide behind this, I was born this way. If you're here and you struggle with alcoholism and you say, well, I come from an alcoholic family, okay. Do you not believe that God is stronger than whatever's going on in your family? Cannot God rescue you from that? If you're here and you're struggling with homosexuality, you say, well, I was born this way. I didn't choose it. Okay. I'm not, I feel like as Christians, we don't even need to get into that argument. What if you're right? So what? Does not God have something better for you? Has he not called you to submit your body to him? Follow him. That is true freedom. In Paul's freedom, he submits his life, his time, and his body for the service of Jesus Christ. And he knows that's far better. In the Corinthians' freedom, they become slaves to their own pleasures. And they cannot choose otherwise. So how does this apply to us? Next week, Mark Vallake is going to preach on Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul brings this home for the Corinthians, and he gives them very specific uh, settings. I'll be here. I just, Mark is a great guy, and God has gifted him for preaching and teaching, and I like to give him opportunities. So I'm excited to hear what, what he has for us. But I want you to think back to those migrants and the rescuers. You see, one group is holding on to something shaky, And we do that today. We hold on to rights that can be taken away at a moment by our culture and our government. 
We hold on to freedoms. We say these are ours, but they can be taken away at any moment. And we chase after that. They were doing it in Corinth too. We hold on to rotting ropes tied to sinking ships that were never seaworthy to begin with. And we're unwilling to let go. And Paul says, God is something so far greater. And when you experience the freedom that is yours in Jesus Christ, you know that security. You can say, I can go back into that difficult situation. My difficult family, the difficult culture and community. I can go back with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are you holding on to? What are you clinging to as your boat, your vessel to get you through? Maybe it's your rights. Maybe it's your freedoms. Maybe it's something else. Could be pleasure, success, sin. I don't know. God is coming to us and saying, I have something better. Let go of that boat. Get in the rescue ship. And not only does he save us and rescue us, but then he equips us to be used by him to save others. And there is no better joy in the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May we let go of those things that we cling to for safety and security that we might follow you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.